Welcome to Explore, Teach, Conserve, or the ETC podcast by the University of Minnesota Extension, where we talk with people about exploring, making discoveries, and solving problems to better manage our natural resources, and we share ideas to help you learn more and get involved. This is an older episode from when we used a different title, The Naturalist, but the conversation and ideas are still fresh. If you enjoy it, we hope you'll subscribe and listen to more episodes of Explore, Teach, Conserve, or the ETC. Hi, I'm Santiago from U of M Extension, and this is The Naturalist, a podcast that aims to explore the various topics within the world of Minnesota natural resources, all while trying to capture great stories and talk to people about the environment. This week, we are talking about bees and the efforts being made in Minnesota to gain a better understanding of their populations. We first talked to Elaine Evans, an extension educator with the University of Minnesota, about native bees and the bee diversity studies currently being conducted. Later, we get a chance to talk to Britt Fosberg, program coordinator for the University of Minnesota Bee Atlas program, about the Bee Atlas program as a whole, the impact of citizen scientists on the program, and the goals and challenges of this initiative. This is the sound of a carpenter bee. I personally don't know much about bees outside of their impacts on pollination and that they are very sensitive to environmental changes. For this episode, I set out to learn more about bees in Minnesota and how they are doing. Are they doing badly? What are researchers studying exactly? And how can citizen scientists get involved in the process? So I am Elaine Evans. I'm an extension educator with the University of Minnesota, um, and I focus on bees, mostly native bees, and um, work on pollinator habitat and um, bee conservation. What are you know some of the major projects you're working on right now? One of them is um, with the Minnesota Bee Atlas. I'm working on a bumblebee survey with them. So we have citizen scientists, volunteers that have adopted routes all throughout the state of Minnesota and people are going out and making observations of bumblebees along these routes. They've been trained in bumblebee identification, and then they're also um, taking photo vouchers of some species that are a little more difficult and reporting these data back. And by doing that, we're getting, um, getting some nice population level information about um, not just where these bumblebees are, but but how they're doing. So this is a nice complement to another uh, a nationwide project called Bumblebee Watch, mm-hmm. where anyone anywhere can take a photo of a bee and submit it. And that gives us a good idea of which bees are where, but not necessarily this kind of uh, more, uh, you know, harder to get population level information. Um, 
I'm also, I also do bumblebee surveys um, locally, just in the, I'm based in St. Paul. And we do, um, this is our 11th year doing bumblebee surveys in parks in the Twin Cities. And so this one we're, we're um, revisiting particular sites to try to get um, the, uh, this, kind of, this long-term data set to look at population trends for bumblebees. Um, so I'm also involved in, in research projects. So um, I have a research project looking at um, some comparative, asking a comparison between um, kind of how bees used to be doing and how they're doing now for, for native bees. Okay. So we have, um, we did collections of bees in a couple areas where we have good historic collections in the insect collection here at the University of Minnesota. So then we've been going through and databasing all those bees, which is a huge project which the, actually the DNR has been involved in that too. They're doing some similar, um, trying to find out, you know, what bees are where kind of um, project. And then we did um, focus samplings on areas where we had lots of those records to, so we can do some of the, those comparisons to really kind of tell how bees are doing compared to how they used to be doing. Right, right. Well, that's well, a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, and then the other main thing that I'm working on is um, is work with the rusty patch bumblebee. So that's the the first bee to be listed as an endangered species um, federally, and it does one of the few places where it still occurs is in Minnesota. Particularly, we have a lot of you know relatively a lot of records in the metro, um, Twin Cities metro here. So um so there there are a lot of um there's a lot of work just on um you know working with the fish and wildlife service and um doing some education and outreach about the rusty patch bumblebee to get um homeowners here aware of how they can help rusty patch bumblebee and also some some research projects on um trying to figure out what's going on with them and how we can help them so how how do those records show bee populations? How, how are they doing compared to when the last time those records were actually, uh, you know, gathered and, and studied back in the day, I'd say. But. Yeah, yeah. So um, we're, so for, for that historic comparison project, we're still getting the, the data all together. Um, so I don't have have the answer for, for, you know, how things are here. We know, that there are um, some big differences in terms of, of some species, but um, it's a difficult question to answer overall with just how bees are doing because um, they're so diverse mm -hmm. and there's so many of them that we, we don't know a lot about. So, I mean, you know, just as an example, it's just in the last couple of years since we databased the the records in the insect collection here that we've been even able to talk about how many bee species do we have in Minnesota. Right. So before a couple of years ago, we didn't even know how many we had. 
So knowing how they're doing is, is a big step forward from that. Um, so we do know, um, you know, honeybees, we know how they're doing because they're a managed bee and they're in these boxes and you can open them up and, and see how they're doing, you know, compare their health. And so we do know that that honeybees are um, are having some big health problems. So we it's about forty percent of honeybee colonies that die every year. Okay. But um, the the good news side of that is that beekeepers are really good at keeping honeybees, and they know how to um, you know they can make more colonies. Honeybees aren't going to go extinct. Okay. We can breed more, we can replace those colonies, but um, honeybees are kind of like livestock. So since they're a managed bee, you can imagine if, um, you know, people raising dairy cows were losing 40% of their cows every year, um, they'd be in a state of panic. Yeah. And I mean, Bees are a lot different than cows, but still, um, it is a big stress on the beekeepers to for, to have these um, these health problems. So that brings up an interesting question. Um, given that I guess honeybees aren't doing so hot, um, you know, what would happen if uh, big what if? But what would happen if um, you know native bees were kind of suffering from the same situation? And our numbers were dwindling on that scale. Yeah. Uh, and all we did have was honeybees. Like, what type of environmental impacts would we would we see from that? Right. So we do one group of bees that we do know about are bumblebees. We have just more information about them. So we know it's roughly one out of every four species of bumblebees that are in decline, and that's globally. Um, you know, lots of evidence for for bumblebees having problems. So, um, you know, honeybees, we rely on them a lot for um, pollination on in big agricultural fields where there's these huge fields, um, you know, in particular crops where we can bring new honeybees in. Um, but around all those fields, there are native bees too. So native bees are kind of all over the place. And they actually are contributing a lot to, to pollination of, of crops. And additionally, um, there are a lot of native plants that are relying on the native bees for pollination. So honeybees are um, great for pollinating certain things. But um, because of their behaviors and their choices, they don't visit everything. So it's roughly 90% of plants overall that are depending on animals for moving their pollen around. And a lot of that is happening from wild bees. So the ecological impact of those plants, um, you know, so many plants losing, um, their ability to reproduce um, as effectively would be really dramatic for if plants are at the, the base of the whole food chain, you know, so just going up the food chain from plants to all the insects that eat plants, all the birds that eat insects, all the, the you know, other mammals and, you know, uh, <laughs> following it up that way, looking at the water cycle, if plants are doing well and they're not, you know, filtering and 
um, it's a really gigantic impact. Yeah, that's quite the situation. Um, and it's, I feel like it's easy to forget how, how much one little thing can, you know, kind of trickle up or trickle down, depending on the way you look at it. Um, yeah. And, and just because of the, um, you know, po pollination that they're doing, it's this, it's this big connection that's, um, you know, um, affecting, affecting a lot of, of different communities. Okay. So I guess going forward, if the situation was where, you know, you found out this information and uh, bees weren't doing so hot, what would be some of the steps that as a state, you know, we could kind of take to, to better that situation? Is it really just dependent on, you know, local communities kind of banding together and, you know, investing in pollinator friendly um, installments, or is it, you know, really comes down to the legislative, uh, you know, kind of taking initiative on the political side of things? So, so um, one of the, the nice things, and one of the reasons why I think a lot of people have gotten engaged and interested in the topic of pollinators is because there's a lot of different levels of action that can make a difference. So you can make a difference by um, having a pollinator garden in your yard, providing flowers, providing some places for native bees to nest and keeping those flowers free of pesticides. Um, but there's other levels you can work on too. So with, you know, 80 to 90% of, of land being an agricultural production in the, you know, in the, in the Midwest here, um, and these bees existing everywhere, there's, um, there's a lot that can be done for trying to improve habitat for them in other places too. So um, having having um, state programs that encourage um, and that provide incentives for farmers to create pollinator habitat. Um, and actually in the state here, we have a lot of great programs that are doing that. Um, those can make a, a huge difference for providing these, um, you know, re kind of restoring native habitat out um, throughout the state so that these um, bees can have some place to live. Um, those, those can make a huge difference. And even, you know, up to the, up to the federal level, working with the, the new farm bill that's going to be going through. And um, again, a lot of the, the things that can help are getting these um, incentive programs for farmers to compensate them for for creating um, pollinator habitat. Those are um, those are really effective, great great ways to to promote habitat. I think another thing we can do a, a better job of um, in the state is is um, somewhat just just really kind of communicating with with farmers sitting down at the table together and 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 talking about things um habitat that's already in the farmland that can be um can be either kept there or you can get more of it in there things that can be done to to help bees do well um things like 
planting um, cover crops and different things that actually flower and provide food for the bees, having wooded areas that provide nesting habitat for bees. Um, also to, to sit down at the table and talk with, with farmers about, um, about how to protect those habitats then from um, accidental pesticide drifts that, um, because we don't, you know, the, the, the tricky part with creating all this habitat and farmland is making sure that we're keeping it safe for the pollinators as well. Right. So that sounds like a, a huge challenge if, if um, you know, but I, f I feel like bees are one of the few, well, not few, but bees are definitely one of the insects that people are like, oh, well, most of the time that they're pretty yeah. gonna hope about helping out. Um, yeah. You have the occasional friend that freaks out every time you see a bee, but um, mm -hmm. I don't think yeah, people are, people in general are are starting to understand how how important they are. Yeah. And if we if we broaden the conversation out to to pollinators, then we can bring in really charismatic pollinators like the monarch that that a lot of people um, you know remember a time when they were everywhere and um, have really notice the, the dramatic difference with the drop in their population. Timeline wise, when are some of these projects, these new surveying projects, when are they, you and your team, when are you aiming to kind of be done with those and have some of those numbers um, that are more concrete? The historic comparison project is one that will be um, winding up. We should have, um, results to talk, to talk about that within the next year. The, some of the projects with the Rusty Patch Bumblebee are just starting up. So, so those um, will, are going to be ongoing. There's some urgency with that because, um, because of the listing of the Rusty Patch Bumblebee. So, um, so hopefully we'll be able to, um, to, to process that information quickly and get that information into practical recommendations for for recovering the rusty patch bumblebee what were their populations and kind of ranges before their endangered kind of listing was it a bee that was kind of spread out across the state kind of seen everywhere or is it very specific to a certain part of the state or country um right as you said i think minnesota is the only place that has it now but was that one like, of, like one of a handful of places that's okay. so it used to be found throughout from from here minnesota was kind of as far west as it went but then it went all the way over to the east coast up into canada um down into um the southern part of the u.s as well so it was really widespread and it was um one of the most common bees so um in minnesota here it was, um, you know, like in the top five for the, the species. Um, and, you know, so, so yeah, we saw it really regularly, um, really widespread. And um, it had a really dramatic sudden drop around the year 2000, where um, all of a sudden it just wasn't being seen. So there were a number of years where people were looking and not finding it. Um, in the, as an example, in the, in the Twin Cities here, um, I used to see them commonly. I didn't see them from um, 1999 until um, 2010. 
and um, their populations were just so low. Um, you know, I was I was doing surveys, looking for them, um, but I wasn't seeing them at all. And so I've been seeing them since um, since 2010, but every year when I see them, I only see you know maybe five individuals right. if I'm lucky. Um, so it's helped to have programs like Bumblebee Watch, where anyone anywhere can just take a photo of them and upload them. So, so we've gotten a lot more locations um, where they're found around the Twin Cities. But it's still every year it's maybe, um, you know, a dozen places where where people see them and and take pictures and and send them in. Okay. So they're also still, it's a similar situation actually in Madison, Wisconsin. They have this a same kind of thing where they, they're they seeing, um, they see a few of them there every year or two. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, just the idea of having a, you know, such a widespread bee kind of just decline to the point where it's not as uh, uh, visible anymore. That's really... Um, mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's, it's pretty concerning. We'll be right back after the short break. Hey, Santiago, I heard about an event on September 30th. Yes, Tracy, uh, this 30th, which is in about two weeks, we have National Public Wednesday. Oh, that sounds fun. Can you tell me more about it? Yes, so National Public Lands Day is a national effort where we get people together to do some service on public lands. So this year, we have about 12 sites scattered around the state, ranging from Rochester to, we have another site in Boulder Lake, which is in northeastern uh, Minnesota, for people who don't know. And uh, yeah, we have everything ranging from buckthorn removal all the way to helping install pollinator gardens. So there's something for everybody. That sounds like a lot of fun. I like to be outside. Where can I find more information? If you want to register for a site and learn more about the program and what we're doing this year, feel free to log on to www.minnesotamasternaturalist.org. The Bee Atlas program is a major citizen scientist-driven survey program for the University of Minnesota. When it's finished, the program will have a ton of data to help shape a better understanding of bee populations in Minnesota and their distributions. I'm Britt Forsberg and I'm the program coordinator for the Minnesota Bee Atlas um, out of the University of Minnesota Extension. All right, and how long have you been involved with Bee Atlas? Uh, we've just finished our second year with the Bee Atlas. Okay, okay. Um, so, what is Bee Atlas? Sure. So, we are a four-year funded uh, grant program funded by the Environment and Natural Resources Trust Fund. This is usually called LCCMR, uh, but the pot of money is actually the Environment and Natural Resources Trust Fund. So, over these four years, including three field seasons, we're using citizen scientist volunteers to help us understand the diversity and distribution of native bees in Minnesota. There are probably about 400 different species of native bees in Minnesota, in addition to the European honeybee, which is not native to North America. 
So our volunteers are looking at a number of different protocols and then we'll be able to combine our data from our volunteers with that from others at the University of Minnesota, Minnesota DNR and historic collections to create one publicly accessible online database that will have as much information about these as possible. All right, that sounds really cool. Um, how's it how's it going so far in terms of uh, getting people on board and working with the other departments and different organizations across the state? I think that our one challenge is going to be the technology behind making each database talk to each other so you can have one query that accesses multiple points. But in terms of making connections, we have met our targets for volunteers. Uh, we have certainly know everybody else in the state who's working on these. And so I think we'll have quite a bit of data at the end. Yeah, I can imagine that being a, a ton, a ton of data. So this is a pretty ambitious project, I'd say, right? Uh, or is this like easy, easy, <laughs> but you know, done before in other states type of thing? Uh, other states do have more information. Wisconsin has cataloged uh, all of their bees. So officially, in the last historic record for Minnesota, uh, our last census of bees in 1919, there were 67 different species. Wisconsin has over 400. So clearly difference being just that Wisconsin has taken the time to look for them. Uh, and we haven't combined all of our resources. Certainly lots of people research bees in Minnesota and know that there are far more than 67 species. Um, this will be the first um, first way that the people are combining all that information into one place. And considering how big the state is, uh, how's it been like coordinating those efforts? Do you have uh, assistant scientists collecting data in different corners of the state? Or is it kind of centered around a specific location? Uh, our, our goal has been to spread it out geographically. There are, tend to be more volunteers in the metro area. That's where more people live. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so we've been able to get some of these outstate areas by offering our workshops uh, in different places. There are still still places that are hard to get to um, along the Iowa border. It's not as populated. There's a lot of agriculture, um, so we don't have mm -hmm. as many volunteers there. We don't have as many volunteers as we'd like in the far northwest corner of the state. Um, but all of our um, all of the locations where we have volunteers working are on our website. And in terms of reaching volunteers, you know, what, what type of strategies have you been using to uh, find these citizen scientists uh, volunteers? Has it been pretty fairly, you know, easy? Do you just have a ton of people flooding in just being, oh, I, I want to help out with bees and, and stuff like that? Or has it been kind of a challenge trying to get the word out? We definitely lucked out by having our project um, come as when it did, right? There's a lot of media attention to bees. Uh, a lot more people are aware that they're in trouble. And so a lot, there's a lot of public interest. Uh, for the, the bee blocks in particular, for one of our protocols, uh, we looked at what different groups would either be interested in the data that we're collecting or in the information that we're sharing. So large numbers of those volunteers are from places like nature centers, environmental learning centers. They're keeping their observations near a pollinator garden or a building where they have a lot of interpretive opportunities. We also had county land managers uh, who were quite interested. They want to better document the diversity that they have in their parklands. Um, another large group have been master naturalists or other volunteers as part of the DNR SNA steward program. So these folks are already 
volunteering at a scientific and natural area in the States, usually looking for, are there downed trees? Has there been vandalism? You know, what, what different things are going on in that area? But then adding a B block to observe at the same time. When you have these people coming in and interested and stuff like that, how, how, how does the training come along? Is it, is it very simple? Is it, you know, intensive or, you know, are you, are you trying to, um, get the best data possible by giving them all the tools and, and, and information they need to get this thing going? Sure. It depends on which protocol area they're interested in. Uh, the simplest area we have is just sharing photos of bees through the website iNaturalist. So sometimes these are people who come to a workshop where we practice taking pictures of bees. We have some tips about ways to get better pictures of bees or ways to get better photos that are more likely to be identified by others. But they're often just hobby photographers who have, are already using iNaturalist or um, who have seen us online and happen to submit their photos. So that's pretty easy. Uh, the middle level of protocols, monitoring our bee blocks. We have written materials and then online videos. Now, these volunteers are spread the most throughout the state, and so it's very hard to reach all of them in person. But the videos are at three to five minutes long. Those volunteers are looking at a bee block and um, reporting if there are new nests being created, uh, what materials are being used, and which of the six different size holes are they building. And so the protocols aren't difficult to follow, but Sometimes identifying material or you know getting out each time is the challenge. I would say that the most difficult level is identifying bumblebees. So these volunteers have a full day training, a six hour day, just learning bumblebee species. There are about 20 species uh, in Minnesota. Some of them are pretty obvious once you know what to look for and some of them you have to look a bit more closely. Um, but those are amazingly dedicated volunteers. There are always a handful who leave a workshop going, Oh, I hope that's, I just had no idea whose minds are kind of blown, but then I would say 75% of them leave and are just excited to go out and start looking for bumblebees. You know, do you, do you ever run into situations where, you know, you get these photos on iNaturalist and it's just like a blob of yellow and black? It does happen. <laughs> or you but, go on one side and, you know, for bumblebees, it's, what color is the hair on the top of their head? What color, you know, what are the bands and the abdomen look like? So really having multiple views is important. And a lot of people are just, I mean, when I started, you just get excited. <gasps> I have a picture and it's in focus. <laughs> I mean, that feels like an achievement before you realize what angle you should be taking or multiple angles or I need to see these features. Yeah, I can, uh, I can picture that being very important for the IDing process. Um, but we also get a fair number of um, wasps and flies submitted who may have similar color patterns or uh, flies. Mm -hmm. mm. Quite, there are some flies that just uh, just have black and yellow stripes. And so in people's heads automatically that goes to be. And there are some flies that are very tricky mimics of these, uh, particularly bumblebees. They're just really? round. They're black and yellow. They're really, really fuzzy. I did not know that. Uh, mind blown, kind of. Yeah. You know. uh, <laughs> the learning curve for my job is pretty steep. I've accumulated a lot of knowledge in that time. As as for yourself, I mean, how how did you get involved with with bees? Has it been a thing you've you know always wanted to get into, or is it just kind of something that that fell into uh, your path? 
per se? Uh, sort of a combination of both. Uh, previous to working with Extension, I was an educator at the Bell Museum of Natural History who pioneered honeybee programs for the state and using honeybees to talk about um, different social relationships, um, bringing students into hives to work with them. So I have been a hobby bee honeybee keeper, where I did it for about four years. Uh, I kept my hives in Wisconsin at my parents' house. Uh, now, actually, my dad has gotten so excited. He loves it, so he's taken over, which is great because he actually lives there and I have to drive two hours uh, to get there. So I have this background with honeybees, which turns out are, they're very different from native bees. Uh, I had experience teaching adults, uh, working with volunteers. So those skills transfer very easily. Okay. Are you feeling hopeful? Are you feeling concerned about the state of bees? And has this um, project kind of given you a better insight into that situation? Sure. I would say I feel pretty optimistic. Uh, we might not be in a great spot now, but there are so many people who are getting excited and so many people who are starting to change their habits, who are gardening differently, um, doing their landscaping. And everywhere I go and meet new people, they ask what I do. When I explain, they all go, wow, well, that's so cool. Right? No one has ever said, that job sounds really boring. Or I can't believe you guys spent all that money on bees. Right? Like everybody thinks it's this neat thing and who wishes they either knew more or could do more about it. Um, so in that, so we're working with the public. Certainly I feel optimistic. But also, okay. is a, there's some being real with it, right? To know, oh, wow, um, like pesticides really are a problem. Or, um, or I've I got a lot of people who, um, who anecdotally want to tell me, you know, when I was a kid, we had all these bees around our apple trees, and now I only see a couple. And I don't have that perspective, not having lived in Minnesota that long. Um, and so these people are remind, remembering things from 30, 40 years ago. Right. So yeah. in that regard, it's, wow, well, what was it like before? Right. I certainly see more bees now just because I know to look for them and I know what they look like. Mm -hmm. um, to realize, oh, there actually are bees around all the time when I would have said, before this job, like, well, I don't know. Yeah, maybe I saw a bumblebee two weeks ago. <laughs> like knowing what to see just makes you see it a lot more. I guess my final question uh, would be, you know, how does someone get involved uh, with the program? Or if someone's just really curious about bees in their local area, you know, what are, um, with some advice you have for people that, you know, kind of just want to get involved with bees and don't really know where to start. Sure. In terms of um, looking for bees, there are a couple of great books out there just to understand what are the essential characteristics of bee. When are you seeing a bee? Uh, when are you seeing a wasp, a fly? Uh, color is not necessarily helpful. There are green bees and there are green flies. There are black and yellow striped bees. There are black and yellow striped wasps. Um, so the two books I really like are The Bees in Your Backyard, and then I'm going to look at the title here. 
these identification and native plant forage guide. It's really long, uh, but that is specific to the Midwest area. So knowing what to look for um, and then thinking about how you garden and how you can be gardening in a way that supports them. It doesn't have to mean pull out your entire yard and plant it all with native plants, right? That's difficult, that's overwhelming. You might want some of your lawn to actually be your yard for grilling your kids, whatever. Um, but as I've noticed, even in my urban lot in St. Paul, that as I add features, as I have some open spaces with dirt, as I leave perennial stems up, as I add native plants, that I see more bees in my yard. Um, so once you know what to look for and you can start, start seeing them, then you can see the changes that you're making and how to make a difference. Outside of uh, your own backyard and, and maybe looking up information and, and finding those resources that could help you shape, you know, your thoughts on how you want to go forward with your with your own space. Um, are there certain uh, groups that you know you sh that are kind of statewide or regional wide that that are be focused? Yeah, there are a handful. I mean, I think one really important group to follow is the Xerces Society. So they are um, just covering invertebrates broadly, but they were the driving force behind, <clears throat> excuse me, getting the rusty patch bumblebee listed as a federal endangered species. So, I mean, they have information for the public, for homeowners. Uh, they also have scientists who are collecting data <clears throat> and um, a citizen science program just looking at photos of bumblebees. So they were able to document this decline in range, the decline in numbers, um, and then petition the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to get the rusty patch bumblebee listed. So I, they really have their pulse or their fingers on the pulse of what's going on uh, and are able to take action. Okay. Or is, there, is there like local chapters or that's kind of just a statewide, nationwide thing? Yeah, it's a nationwide. Or a, North American. Okay. All right. I mean, there are certainly groups in that there are different chapters of wild ones, and so they're about native gardening, and they have quite a bit of information about pollinators, and you get to meet other like-minded people. Uh, there are tons of honey beekeeping clubs, right, which are a little different because that's primarily on uh, beekeeper, keep your bees over winter, get more honey, those sorts of things. Mm. But there, Minnesota is, when it comes to um, political advocacy and pollinators, the past legislative session, all of the bills related to pollinators did fail. But there are, there are huge numbers of people who are lobbying for different treatments of pesticides, of neonic noise, um, different rules around roadside mowing. Um, so, so that is certainly an area that you could get involved in. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Naturalist. For more information about the University of Minnesota Bee Atlas program, you can log on to www.extension.umn.edu. It's a bit of a search to find all the info, but it's there. This episode's music is by Twin Musicom and Silent Partner. Thank you for listening and have a great day.